Uh, there's a lot of suspicion about churches and money and about church leaders and their wealth in our community. And, well, when you see reports like that on a current affair, you can understand that suspicion. And at the heart of the wealth of these preachers and their organisations is the insistence of the church on the practice of tithing, the practice of giving a tenth of your income or your increase in wealth to the church. And that practice is not confined to C3 churches. The privilege and responsibility of wide stewardship of all that God has given, including the practice of tithing to the local church. That's one of the principles of belief on the statement of faith on Acts Global's website. The, the link is there and entirely unreadable. But it is there. And that's the new name from 2017 of the Apostolic Church, which is the denomination that runs the Uni Hill Church on the corner. And below that is a quote from the Seventh-day Adventist manual, again on their website, in recognition of the biblical plan and the solemn privilege and responsibility that rest upon members as children of God and members of his body, the church all are encouraged to faithfully return a tithe, one-tenth of their increase or personal income into the denomination's treasury. And they take that requirement seriously. If you're an office bearer, amongst the uh, Seventh-day Adventists in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination and you're not tithing, you get sacked. So tithing is quite common, especially with groups with highly centralised leadership structures. As a result, these organisations can expand quite rapidly and deploy resources to areas they see as strategic. Tithing works from an organisational perspective. Now, that, of course, might make us suspicious of their motives for insisting on tithing as a condition of membership. But suspicion is not enough. We have to ask ourselves, because we heard tithing spoken of in Deuteronomy 14, is tithing biblical? Is tithing something that genuinely faithful believers, people who trust that the Lord is the source of all the wealth they have, should be doing as a God-required sign of their thankfulness and trust and an acknowledgement of their dependence on the Lord for all they have. And are we, as a leadership in this congregation, not only being dopey but disobedient in not teaching you to tithe, disobedient in not making that a condition of membership, perhaps not making it a condition of membership because we're fearful or lacking in confidence, as it were, in our product and so worried that if we did, people would leave. Are we allowing perhaps a complacent worldliness to set in amongst us where our wealth is just to be used for our own comfort and pleasure, where that's allowed, in a sense, to take precedence over the command of God to tithe? And by going quiet on the tithe, are we stopping you from experiencing what that last preacher on the clip was talking about, from experiencing the blessing of wealth by not encouraging you to give and to get in return. So why don't we, when people ask us about how much they ought to be giving to the church, tell them to tithe? 
What does the Bible say about tithing for believers in Jesus? What instruction is there about our money and what we should be giving? How does the discussion of tithing in Deuteronomy 14 help us think about the way we use the money entrusted to us by our Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would help us all to understand it and that you would help me to teach it truthfully and clearly and boldly as I ought. But gracious Father, we pray for more than understanding. Uh, We pray that through the powerful work of your spirit in our hearts, ours would be lives characterised by faith and hope and love in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what firstly does the Old Testament teach about the tithe and tithing, the giving of a tenth of our income or increase to the Lord? Well, firstly, tithing predates the giving of the law. Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil from the battle with the five kings to Melchizedek, something that the author of Hebrews makes quite a lot of in terms of establishing the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood, but makes nothing of in terms of the practice of Christians. Oh yes, and Jacob there in verse 22 uh, promised to give a tenth to the Lord if the Lord brought him back safely to Canaan. Now those are spontaneous actions and offers. And yet they fit into their culture. We are told that other ancient Near Eastern cultures practice the giving of a tenth, either in a vow or thankfulness, often thankfulness for victory in battle. And when you think about it, the giving of the tenth is the giving of the smallest, easily identifiable fraction of the whole if your fingers are your abacus. Now, tithing by the people of Israel is is first commanded in Leviticus. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord. Verse 32, every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal, shall be holy to the Lord. Here the tithe is to be given of both produce, grain and fruit, and of animals, herds and flocks. And it's said to be holy, separated to the Lord, belonging to him to be used as he directs. And the use the tithe is to be put to is made clear in Numbers 18. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. The tithe is to be given to the Levites to sustain them and the priesthood in their service at the tent of meeting. That is, the tent in the centre of the Israelite camp, which was the sign of God's presence amongst his people. Uh, The tithe was for the Levites because they would have no land of their own and their time was to be dedicated to the service of the Lord, protecting the Israelites from coming into contact with the holy things of the tent of meeting. So the Levites had no means of providing for themselves in an agricultural economy, and yet their service was vital in sustaining Israel as the people of God, in sustaining their distinct identity. So God gives the Levites the tithes, and the Levites were to make a tithe of the tithe they received to give to the priests. Now we have to remember that the Levites' role extended beyond their service of the tent and the altar. You see, the Levites 
function a little like health inspectors, declaring people clean or unclean from disease. Though they had to mediate disputes, give judgments in difficult cases. They also had to teach the people the law. So you could say that the Levites also served as a kind of civil service, the civil service of the government of Israel, for the Lord is king in Israel. Now, what we have in Deuteronomy 14 is not the institution of the tithe, but the adaptation of the practice of tithing to the new circumstance of Israel living in the land, where there'll be a central sanctuary at some distance from many of the Israelite settlements, and where the Levites will now be scattered throughout the land, no longer all within easy access to the place of sacrifice. And Deuteronomy 14 prescribes three changes to the practice of tithing. Firstly, there is provision for a family feast when they bring the tithe to the central sanctuary, the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell. And before the Lord God, verse 23, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain. Now, plainly, they will eat only a portion of the tithe because if a tenth of their produce could be eaten in one meal, they would be in real danger of starvation before the end of the month, actually. Uh, No, they eat only a portion, and the rest is given to the priests and the Levites at the sanctuary. But now in the fruitful land, Israel was to have another opportunity to rejoice in the Lord's provision for them and in his presence amongst them. Uh, celebrating the Lord's provision, uh, giving thanks for his faithfulness to his promise uh, to give them a fruitful land, would nurture in them the fear of the Lord, where fear has more that sense of trusting all. So remembering the Lord's faithfulness, enjoying the Lord's faithfulness together, would encourage Israel to in turn trust his faithfulness and so motivate them to continue to live as his holy people. And the tithe was a reminder, eating the tithe, feasting, was a reminder that worship at the sanctuary was their worship, something that included them, not just done for them by the priests. No, it was their worship, for the Lord was their God, not just the God of the priests. Oh, and secondly in Deuteronomy 14, there's provision to make it easy to keep this requirement to bring their tithe and rejoice before the Lord. It would be hard to transport a tenth of your harvest. So by selling the produce, they could turn it into silver. And it is silver money. Coins were not minted until the 5th century BC. Now with that silver, they could then purchase at the sanctuary whatever they wanted. So this made it easy for every Israelite, wherever they lived, to share in this worship. And notice there, uh, verse 26 The emphasis is on the generosity of God's provision. Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice. The emphasis is on God's generosity and shared joy. And it speaks of including the Levite in their town. That's the local Levite who lived amongst them to teach and administer the provisions of the law in distinction from the Levites in the sanctuary who would receive the rest of the tithe. The local Levite was to be included 
in this meal and their rejoicing. And the third change is, is the provision made for the relief of poverty through the tithe, through allowing it to be kept in the local community every third year. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. What all the beneficiaries in verse 21 have in common is that they have no land to work as their own or, like a widow, are unable to work the land. So they could not produce what was needed by themselves from the Lord's provision of the land. But they weren't to be excluded from the enjoyment of what the Lord had provided for his people through the gift of the land because the Lord cared for all, especially for sojourners and widows and orphans. This modification could happen because once settled in the land, there'd be more of the agricultural tithe than when they were travelling around in the wilderness. And this modification was needed because the Levites would be in their towns and no longer around the tabernacle to share in the tithe brought to the tabernacle. And in being generous, they were promised that they would continue to enjoy the Lord's generosity to them, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So in summary, what does the tithe provide for? Well, you could think of it as a system of taxation that supported the sanctuary, which in many ways can be seen as the seat of government, for the Lord was king amongst his people. And it supported the teaching and administration of the law through sustaining the Levites, not just at the sanctuary, but throughout the land. And finally, it helped support the poor. It ensured that all could enjoy God's goodness. Everyone contributed to it, and with the provision for feasting, everyone gained some benefit from it, and some, the landless, gained more benefit. But we should remember that it was not all, the tithe was not all an Israelite provided for worship. Uh, we had a brief summary of what was required of an Israelite in Deuteronomy 12. In addition to the tithe, there's burnt offerings and sacrifices, contributions, vow offerings, free will offerings, the firstborn. There's actually a lot more involved, more costs in supporting the sanctuary. Oh, and the tithe was not all that Israel was to provide for the poor, as we'll start to see next week. In addition to the third yearly tithe, land-holding Israelites were to provide for the poor through leaving their fields to be gleaned, through leaving their fields fallow every seventh year, through forgiving debt, through individual generosity to the needy. But the third year tithe was a public duty, a structural provision. Help for the needy was a communal responsibility, not just left to private charity. So the tithe is not the sum total of an Israelite's giving. Now, before we leave the Old Testament to look at what the New Testament says about tithing, there's one passage that's quite often referred to by those wanting to insist on tithing amongst believers. And perhaps they go to Malachi 3 because it links the tithe to receiving blessing from God. Uh, this is God speaking to the Israelites. Say from verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. For the people of Malachi's day, who were living unfaithfully to the covenant the Lord had made with the nation Israel at Sinai, people who were despising the sacrifice made in the temple and its worship, Bringing the tithe again would be an expression of faith and repentance. Faith that the Lord, but the Lord, their king, was the only God. That he was the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of history, and not some small tribal God who could be ignored. But the source of all the good they enjoyed, who was able to care for his people. So it would be a sign of faith and of repentance, seen in conforming their lives to his revealed will in his law, and honouring his presence in their midst by sustaining worship of the temple. But this is not general instruction to God's people today to tithe, for our relationship to the Lord is not governed by the provisions and stipulations of the Sinai Covenant. We are not a nation state. Our worship is not focused on the activity of a Levitical priesthood making sacrifices in a temple in Jerusalem. And that explains why the New Testament is silent on any requirement of believers to tithe. Tithing is mentioned in the New Testament in relation to the activity of Abraham with Melchizedek and also in relation to the misplaced priorities of the Pharisees. This is Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, small herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, the gospel references highlight one of the dangers of insisting on tithes, and that is that tithing can breed a self-righteous legalism where you keep the external rules, you do what is, in a sense, easy, like giving money, because you can do that with an unchanged heart a heart that's far from God's priorities. Now that's about it for New Testament references. So if tithing is not commanded in the New Testament, how should we relate to this law of tithing? Some want to somehow isolate it as a timeless principle, divorced from its context in the law and life of Israel in the Promised Land. But why would you do that just with tithing? Why not, well, what we looked at last week in the rest of Deuteronomy 14? Why not observe the rules of clean and unclean food? Why not some of the laws about debt relief that we'll look at next week? Why just isolate tithing? You see, the laws on tithing should be related to in the way we relate to the whole Old Testament law. That law is fulfilled in Christ. He has fulfilled it. And we are no longer bound to fulfilling its stipulations. We're freed from relating to the Lord under the requirements of the covenant God has made with the nation Israel at Sinai. Now, the Apostle Paul is quite insistent on this in Galatians, where some were insisting that believers in Jesus had to be circumcised and keep the whole law. That is, that they had to become Jews if they were to be saved by the Jewish Saviour. 
But Paul says to that throughout Romans, throughout Galatians, sorry, no. He says we're all Jew and Greek, whoever we are, we're all saved, justified, declared right with God by faith in Jesus, who endures the law's judgment on covenant breakers by dying on the cross for us. We are freed from the law's penalty. And Paul insists we are also freed from the requirement to keep the law to be right with God. Those, when he gets to the climax of that argument at the end of chapter 4, he says, those under the Sinai covenant are in slavery. But Paul insists that believers in Jesus are free, free now to live as God's sons and daughters by faith in Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We must never, he says, again submit to keeping the law as law, as the basis of our relationship with God. We relate to God through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, who has poured out the spirit of his Son on us. But the freedom we have as God's sons and daughters, says Paul, must not be abused by living selfishly, giving ourselves to do whatever pleases us. So how is this freedom now to be directed? You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. How is this freedom to be directed? By love. It's through serving one another in love, says Paul, that we will fulfil the intent of the law, including this law of tithing. We don't turn now to the law to direct our giving or the way we use what God has entrusted to us. No, rather we're to ask, how can we, as free children of God, love others with what is entrusted to us? How does love teach us to use our money? How does love direct our giving? Now that love, the fruit of the gospel, thinks and acts in the context of faith in the gospel and the hope the gospel brings. Now what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, for example, the gospel tells us that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. So those who have faith in the gospel, believers, love as those who are not anxious about themselves, but love as those who know they are loved, and that the one who calls us to love and directs our love loves us and can be trusted. So we love in the use of our money as those who know the truth of the gospel promises. For example, Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that is, to live Jesus' way. And all these things, that is, the food and the clothing and, the, and, and housing that we might be anxious about, all these things will be added to you. Or Hebrews 13, where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or 2 Corinthians 9, that tells us that God is able to make all grace abound to us. So we love as those who have faith in Jesus and the gospel promises. And we're to love as those who are confident in the gospel hope. For the Lord Jesus lives to raise us from the dead and bring us into the new heaven and earth. 
So we don't live and we don't use our money as if this life is all there is and all we have to do is get as many experiences and stuff for ourselves now. No, we listen to Jesus who tells us we can store up treasure in heaven by how we use the material wealth entrusted to us now. Store up a treasure that will never be destroyed. Faith, hope and love characterise the Christian life and they characterise how we ought to use the material wealth entrusted to us. Believing differently, hoping differently, well, we should love differently. We should be different from our neighbours. So how might love direct our giving and how we give? Well, let's think about it by looking at what the New Testament that does not talk about believers tithing, looking at what the New Testament says about the use of our money. And as we do that, we will see how love fulfills the law. Consider how love directs the sustaining of the teaching of God's word amongst his people. Paul says to the Galatians, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. If you're to love those who've been set aside to teach and preach, to encourage you, set aside to encourage you in your faith in Jesus by helping you grow in knowledge of Jesus, well, says Paul, you will want to share with them in all the good God has given you. And that is simply a case of loving your neighbour as yourself, providing for them what you also have and expect. So if you want sufficient to participate in society without embarrassment, you'll want that for them. If you want housing, you want that for those who teach the word. If you want holidays or a secure retirement, you will want that for them. And that's the way we've actually structured the way we provide for our ministers. But it's actually love. And, and how might love, say, direct our support of evangelists, those who preach the gospel on our campuses or in other parts of the world? People we pray for God to raise up. That kind of partnership in the gospel we learn from the Philippians is something that scripture commends. And what love expects in our treatment of them is a no-brainer, really, isn't it? I mean, think, if you want someone to bring the gospel to you so that you would be saved, surely loving your neighbour as yourself means that you will do what you can to bring the gospel to them. There's no greater good than eternal life than being spared judgment. So if you know and rejoice in that hope, for yourself, love will move you to support the spread of the gospel as generously as you can. It's not a matter of flogging your conscience, right? It's a matter of love and learning to love. And the New Testament has lots to say about supporting the poor. Now that giving is to be free and personal, but how could we say we love and not try and relieve their need. By this we know love, says John, that he, the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth.
It was love that moved the believers in Acts 11 in Antioch to take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem when they learned of the famine that would overtake them. It was love, love that was a sign of embracing the gospel but made them one family that moved Paul to take up a collection from the churches in Greece for the poor in Jerusalem who the Greek Christians had never met. Oh, and it was love that moved those believers in Greece, despite their own poverty, to support that collection. Loving our neighbour as ourselves directs our giving to the poor. And yes, love directs our paying taxes, we're commanded in Romans 13. You see, the maintenance of order and government services are a good. And that good in our society includes structural provision for the poor. So remember that when you're filling out your tax return, you are loving. Oh, and love will provide for our families as we're commanded in 1 Timothy 5. And uh, it's love that will use what's been entrusted to us to make sure that there are times of thankfulness and rejoicing for God's goodness to us in our family life whether that's at Christmas or birthdays or holidays. And love says that we will include others who do not have our resources, perhaps who are alone and without family, whether that's because they're refugees or have lost all their relatives or been estranged. Love will include them in those times of rejoicing. So think, the tithe provided for sustaining the teaching of God's word, times of rejoicing, care for the poor, the system of judicial administration in Israel. Love, the love that accompanies gospel faith and hope will fulfil the law and it will do more. And love doesn't just direct our use of material wealth and our giving. It also informs how we give. Love is never coercive. It only wants giving that's free, that flows from faith in Jesus and so strengthens faith in Jesus. Love never lies. It never seduces people into giving with false promises. Love directs us away from ourselves to others. And so it never invites giving for selfish returns. Love wants to do what it can without obligating or resenting the recipients. It seeks their thankfulness to God, their free relating to God. And learning love from Jesus, knowing the generous love of Jesus, love tries to be generous. So, as Paul says, we don't give, 9-7, we don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, but as each one of us has decided in our own heart, and we give cheerfully because we've decided in our own hearts to do it, trusting God. So if you were to come and say to me, and people do actually come and say to me from time to time, how much should I give? Should I tithe? This is what I'll say. I'll say, no, don't tithe. And I'll also say, you're asking the wrong question. So often the question about tithing is a question that looks for limits on giving, wanting to know if you've given enough so you can get on and use the rest for whatever you like. No, the Christian question, the question God's sons and daughters ask is, how can I love with my money? And who should I love with my money? And that's the question I'll ask you. Who should you love with your money? 
And are you doing it? And I'll ask you a couple more questions. Do you trust the promises of Jesus that where we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will provide all we need? And a second question, are you ambitious because you trust Jesus for heavenly treasure? Actually, these are questions that you should prayerfully ask yourself when you are thinking about or anew reviewing your giving. These are the questions. Who should I, can I, love with my money? Do I trust Jesus' promise as I make my decisions about my money? Am I ambitious for heavenly treasure? Believe what Jesus says about lasting wealth. And then you ask yourself those questions and it's between you and your Lord. It's not between you and some church administration. It's between you and your Lord who knows your resources and your heart. We don't and we won't make tithing a requirement of membership convenient as it might be for central planning. And that commitment stands even with a budget deficit. I just had to get that in, right? But we won't. In fact, I don't see any need to talk about tithing unless it comes up in the passage we're looking at. And you can relax. It's not going to come up in Deuteronomy again, okay? Yet I do want you to store up treasure in heaven, to know the truth of what the Lord Jesus has said. It's more blessed to give. Acts 20, more blessed, one of the few times Paul quotes Jesus verbatim, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want you to know that blessedness and the truth that God does love a cheerful giver and to be able to testify to his faithfulness in supplying all your needs as you use what is entrusted to you to love others. See, I want you to be able to model that cheerful, generous giving to your children and to your neighbours because, let me say, it is a wonderful thing to leave your children with the experienced testimony to God's faithfulness. But that won't happen where you return to the yoke of slavery, to submitting yourself arbitrarily to some law of tithing. It will happen as you grow in knowledge of your Lord Jesus, in confidence in his faithfulness, in conviction of his love for you in the gospel. It will happen where you give yourself to the work of his spirit in your life, the spirit whose first fruit is love, who teaches you to put to death selfishness and clothe yourself with compassion and kindness. Oh, and it will happen where you know for yourself the grace of the Lord Jesus that has made you incomparably rich, a child of God, an heir of the new heaven and earth, come what may in this life. It will happen as you know that this wealth has come to you by our Lord Jesus' extraordinary generosity, 2 Corinthians 8 9, who would give up heaven to embrace our poverty, our grief, our pain, our loss, our death. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So when you think of the way you use your money, 
including what you give to the work of the gospel here and elsewhere and what you give to the poor. And I hope you do that from time to time because it's entrusted to you to bring glory to your Lord. You are his 100%. Your money is his. You should be asking how he wants you to use it. So when you think of the way you use your money, ask yourself, what does my giving say about my loving? Who should I, can I, love with my money? Do I trust Jesus' promise as I make my decisions about my money? Am I ambitious for heavenly treasure because I believe what Jesus says about lasting wealth? Do I let my love be guided by his word? And if you find when you do that, that you actually have little love, little faith, little hope, well, confess that small faith to your gracious Lord and ask him to change you, to grow you in love as knowledge of his love for you grows and to grow you in faith and confident hope so that you can love with what's entrusted to you. Because our God does love a cheerful giver and it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus lived that way and he can be trusted. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your great mercy because you have so assured us of Jesus' love for us in his death for our sins. That you have given us such confidence in your word of promise and such a strong hope. We pray that we would love with all that you have entrusted to us. Love in such a way that brings relief to the needy, that brings the gospel to those who are in darkness and death, that causes rejoicing in our families and amongst others. Our Father, we pray, make us people who love, not just in words, but in deed and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.